The title today is called Affection in Affliction, and it's about persecution because I think persecution is ramping up more and more. We might not see it as much as we think in here in, in America and in Massachusetts, but we need to be prepared for it. According to Open Doors Ministries and their watch list, persecution of Christians is higher than it's ever been. Across 76 countries, 360 million Christians were persecuted last year. That's 20 million more than the year before. That means one in seven profession, professing Christians are persecuted for what they believe, okay? If, if a man is discovered to be Christian in Afghanistan, he's executed. If a woman's discovered, she's either sold into slavery or she's killed on the spot. In North Korea, if someone is discovered to be a Christian, they and their entire family are thrown into political concentration camps. In Somalia, right now, even being suspected as a Christian faces the penalty of death. And if you're found with the Bible or any other Christian material, they'll kill you and your family right away. Those are just the top three, top three countries that will not tolerate biblical truths. But let's look a little closer. In Europe right now, there are street preachers that preach about human sexuality, morality, and, and murder of young children. They face penalties of going to jail or fines, okay? Last month, just in Canada, there was a preacher that went to a drag queen story time, which took place at a public library. He was physically tossed out by three big grown men, and he went to jail, and now he's facing $100,000 in fines. Right now, even in America, street preachers that go to certain all-inclusive rallies and parades are spat upon, met with violence and hate speech, all for preaching about love and truth in Jesus. These types of people will accept anything except what this book says, and we got to be prepared for it, all except those that follow Jesus. Christians right now are the most hated and vilified people in the world. Believe it or not, this world now calls evil good and good evil. If you call yourself a Christian, you will be called a bigot. You will be considered small-minded, and they're going to say you have all types of phobias. I recently saw on the Daily Wire, how many people know what AI chat is? If you don't know what AI chat is, it's artificial intelligence that the kids, the young people are using right now. You can ask it anything. You can have conversations with it. It'll actually write your homework for you, which is crazy to think. But I saw this article. Put uh, the first, first one on the screen. So this person asked this AI chat to tell a joke about Jesus. I'm not going to tell you the joke, and I'm not going to tell you the punchline, because I find it offensive, and I think many of you will too. But then the same person as the same AI chat to tell a joke about the prophet Muhammad. And what did this say? As an AI language model, I have to follow guidelines to prevent me from creating content that could be offensive or disrespectful towards religious figures, including prophet Muhammad. I'm happy to help you with any other non-religious jokes or any topics that you'd like to discuss. But when it comes to Jesus, people will say all types of things. Persecutions raising up, and the early Christians, they faced the wor worst of it for sure. These people went to their deaths because they wouldn't stop talking about a man that came, performed miracles, died for their sins, and was raised again. That's why they were put to death, and that's why we had to hold on to these truths. If you believe that, if you believe this book, 
now more than ever in this country, you're going to be faced with affliction. You're going to be faced with possibly losing friends, family, and finances. And one day soon, we're going to lose freedoms and possibly even our very own lives. That's what this book tells us. But there's good news in persecution, and I want to get to that. Because persecution can bring promise, and affliction can bring assurance. You make a diamond by having a lot of pressure, right? God says he molds his children like gold and silver. The way you mold, the way you refine gold and silver is you take this precious metal and you put it into high heat. And through the high heat, the impurities come out and then it becomes an even more precious metal. Fun fact, this building about 20 years ago wasn't a church. It was a jewelry refinery institution. They used to refine gold and silver in this very sanctuary. And now God is refining souls in this very building. Amen? All right, so we're going to continue on the series, like I said. So if you would, uh, turn to your Bibles, as Pastor Tim says, your paper Bibles, or I don't care, pull out your phones, because I do it too. First Thessalonians 2, 17 to 3, 13, and stand with me as we read the Word of God. Paul writes, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. And I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus and his coming? Is it not you? For you are the glory and the joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we would suffer afflictions just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and, as long, and you long to see us, and we long to see you for this reason, brothers. In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and make the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish in your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, I just pray that you help me get out of the way, that you speak to your people, that you refine your people, that you teach your people, Lord God. Just guide 
this meeting over the next few minutes. Guide my words. Add anything that you want and take away anything you want, Father. And above all, let us see and experience Jesus in his mighty name. Amen. Please have a seat. So Paul was worried about this young church that he founded, right? He says that he was torn away, which implies that something happened that forced him to leave. He was worried about them. So what did he do? He sent Timothy to find them, to minister to them, and to check on them. And the church in Thessalonica, they were actually questioning their salvation because of persecution. But Paul said, no, 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 no. Because you're being persecuted because you're being bold in your faith, because you're sharing it with others. This is what happens. And we, if we're going to be a bold church speaking truth and light in a world of lies and darkness, then we will face persecution. But Jesus tells us to expect this and then tells us we're going to be blessed because of it. This world is short-lived. We are short-lived we need to be bold while we can, living for his kingdom, being bold and speaking the truth to one another. And there's only one truth that really matters most, that's Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through him. Amen. You better amen because I'm going to take that truth to my death and I hope you do too. Amen. So as Christians, as a church, and as a family of believers, we need to expect what is coming. But I've got positives for you. If you take out your notes, if you don't have paper notes, you're watching online, go to waterschurch.guide. You can fill in the blanks there under today's message. But if you're taking notes, I've got five positives of persecution for you. Write this down. It reminds us that we're connected to a tradition of believers, okay? Christians have been persecuted from the beginning of this movement, so we should expect it too. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was pierced by four soldiers and four spears. Matthew was stabbed to death, and James was stoned and clubbed to death. This happened to all the disciples except John, and they tried to kill him. They tried to poison him and boil him alive, but God protected him so he could finish this book for us and tell us about Jesus coming back. But it wasn't just the apostles. It went on throughout the early church. Hebrews 11.35 tells us, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to be accepted so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains of imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. These are the four founders of our faith, and some of us are afraid to share our faith because we might offend somebody. We need to think about that. But if you're getting persecuted for what you believe, for following Jesus, know that you're in good company. Number two, positive of persecution, write this down. It makes you more Christ-like. When you come to Christ, that is the beginning. God wants to refine you. He wants to mold you. He wants to turn you more into his son, more like his son. And if you're being persecuted, Jesus says, this is a good thing. You're becoming more like me. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So you're following good footsteps if you're getting persecuted. This is a positive of persecution. Number three, it produces spiritual strength it produces spiritual strength like you all know if if it doesn't kill you it makes you stronger 
if you've made it through one thing and it was hard, and I'm just talking worldly, you're going to realize you can do it again, right? Um, I, I preach a couple times a year, and I always get nervous. I take it as a, 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 a sacred responsibility. I don't want to let you down. I don't want to let anyone down. I don't want to let him down more than anyone, but I get really nervous leading up to this. But I know I've gotten through it before because God's gotten me through it, so I know I can get through it again. I know in about 15, 20 minutes, I'll be sitting down relaxing, and you guys will be out of here. So we can get through this together. Romans 5 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us, us to shame, because God's love has been poured into the hearts through the Holy Spirit he has given us. Spiritual strength will produce endurance, and this will strengthen your walk with God, making you more Christ-like, making you able to deal with whatever the world is going to throw at you. And the number four positive of persecution, it provides blessings from heaven. Blessings from heaven. How great is that? God, Jesus says you'll receive blessings here on earth, but then he goes on to say that you'll receive blessings in heaven. Those blessings are eternal. Those blessings do not ever go away. These are blessings that we need to live up to. Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted. And check this out. There's a qualifier here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Two qualifiers right here. In righteousness sake and falsely on my account. That means we don't look for persecution. That means we boldly have to stand on the truth of God's word, but we don't antagonize. We're not looking for it. We're not trying to puff ourselves up and start a fight. No. In love, we need to respond to people. We don't look to, for the persecution, but if it comes our way, we don't back down to it either. Make sense? All right, then finally, the fifth positive of persecution. This might be the most important. It promotes church growth. It promotes church growth. How important is this? Years ago, when the Christian movement came to China, the officials, the government, they weren't, they weren't sure what to do. They knew they couldn't just kill everybody and martyr them because they knew what would happen with that. More people, it would grow. So what did they do? They took all the high officials in the biggest churches, they split them up, and they sent them all around different towns, different locations, far and wide. They thought if these leaders of the church couldn't meet together, well, surely the church wouldn't grow. But all this did was cause them, because how many people know when you come to Jesus, you're not going to stop talking about Jesus. And just because you move from one location to another doesn't mean you're not going to talk about what Jesus has done in your life. So this church grew. And right now, the underground church in China is one of the fastest growing churches around the world, even though they're being persecuted and it's an illegal thing. The same thing happened at the beginning, right? Actually, Saul was persecuting the disciples. It says, after they stoned Stephen, a great fear came over all the apostles. So what did they do? They ran to far different cities, far different towns. They didn't stop talking about Jesus. They spread the gospel. And because of that, today, you and I are here talking about Jesus over 2,000 years later. 
Philippians 1.12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What happened to Paul, the affliction, the persecution, the jailing, the beatings, everything he went through, God used that to push him from town to town to advance the gospel. So those are the positives of persecution. I want to give you a couple tools on how to react to persecution. Because as Christians, we're supposed to be different than the world, right? We're not supposed to respond, you know, um, don't cast a stone at your brother. Uh, turn the cheek. We're supposed to respond differently. So what does that look like? To write this down, the first way to respond is through prayer. The power of prayer through persecution protects, provides, and produces. Why do I say that? And that's a lot of peas, I know. Paul and Silas, they were beaten, they were shackled, they were thrown into jail for simply talking about Jesus. And what did they do? They stayed up all night singing hymns to God on their knees praying. And what did God do? He provided an earthquake. He protected them from that earthquake. Their shackles were free. They were free to go. And that God produced more family members because it says the jailer, the person responsible of watching Silas and Paul guarding them, he got saved and started to believe in Jesus. He protected them. He provided for them. And then he produced fruit through them. The same thing happened to Peter. Peter was in prison for preaching about Jesus. But the church, it says, prayed for him all night. And then God provided an angel which protected Peter, which released Peter and produced Peter back into his church family. Look, a church that prays will be protected. God will provide for them and God will produce through them. Let's be that type of church. So there's another way to respond. And this one's just, if not more important, to persecution. So write this down. I'll say it before you write it, but it's love. Our response to affliction should be affection. Be bold in truth, but respond in love. How many people love loving their enemy, right? Driving down the road, somebody flips you off and you just want to wave or flip them off back. But how many people can actually be good when somebody is, is hating on you and saying all kinds of things about you? How many people can respond in love? Well, you're called to. And Jesus demonstrated this better than anyone else. Jesus forgave sinners, yes, but he also forgave those that were persecuting. He forgave non-believers. Jesus on the cross, as he was being tortured, as he was naked, as he was being crucified, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If Jesus can forgive in the midst of death, I think we can forgive somebody that says bad words about us. Acts 17.30 says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So we respond in prayer and we respond in love. And I want to go back really quick because I didn't think I was going to say this, but I think God told me to say this. Uh, the power of prayer is so powerful. And, and sometimes we just have to testify on it. I woke up this morning after preaching last night at, at 4 a.m., and I realized that I had food poisoning. And the enemy got in my head. And he's like, well, you filmed last night. You can just play that video for these people. They're not going to mind. And I, uh, I got on my knees. And I just prayed, God, I don't think I can do it in my strength. If you want me to preach, then you need to show up. And you need to give me the energy. 
I asked a couple people to pray for me while I showed up, and about 9.40 today, about 40 minutes ago, I started to feel like I could be up here and preach to you guys. And that's all glory to God. That's what I'm saying. So the power of prayer will provide for you, protect you, okay? So let's move on. I think there is actually the, so the benefit of a loving church is really important. So we need to respond with prayer. We need to respond with love. But what does that love look like within the church? Well, I've got four quick points for you on the benefit of a loving church. And number one, a loving church repents. A loving church repents. No one's perfect. No church is perfect. But now more than ever, the church in America, many churches in America need to repent and get back to the gospel. I can drive down 152 right now and I can see about five churches that care more about telling you about your sexuality or the color of your skin than about Jesus Christ and the gospel that saves. Those churches need to get back to the truth and repent. And I give you permission, if you ever show up at a church and they don't teach you these truths in this book about Jesus, run and don't come back unless they repent. Acts 7.30, the time, oh, I already said that, sorry. All right, number two, a loving church reaches. A loving church reaches. How can we not share the truth of Christ? How can we not share this? If we really believe in heaven and hell, if we really believe in an in whole eternity of, of separation from God, how can we not share that for others? Mark says, I mean, Jesus says in Mark, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Not just people we like, not just people we feel comfortable talking to. He says the whole creation. I'm not saying that you need to preach every time you open your mouth, but if God opens opportunities at your workplace with your family, you need to be open for those opportunities and you need to reach other people. We need to be a reaching church because a loving church is a reaching church. And number three, a loving church restores. This one's really important and I've seen it a lot in the church. I've been on staff here for seven years. I've been in this church for about 15 years, saved, baptized here. And I've seen some moral failure, right? We're all human. Um, sometimes we don't live up to what God calls us to do. I've seen it happen in people in the church. I've seen it happen with leaders of the church. But there's two responses to moral failure, especially when confronted by a brother or sister in Christ about it. I've seen people walk out of the church and never come back because they love their sin more than they love Christ. And I've seen people repent and be restored back up where God had them before, if not better. God's going to restore his people. We can't be that church that is just judging everybody. It's easy to judge someone else's sin. I know I've done it before. I know it's easy to judge other people. But we need to be a loving church. And if someone repents, they should be restored. Galatians 6, 1, 2 says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself, but share each other's burdens. So we need to lovingly and gently and humbly restore people back in. That's what a loving church does. And then finally, number four, a loving church reinvests. We reinvest. Paul had Timothy. Paul poured into Timothy, which allowed Timothy to pour into Thessalonia, right? We have life groups here. 
You have life group leaders that should be pouring into you. I believe everyone should have a Paul in their life and everyone should have a Timothy. You need somebody that can spiritually pour into you and somebody that you're spiritually pouring into as well. This is why I love these baptisms. These baptisms are actually your opportunity to pour into the whole congregation. When somebody gets baptized, when a brave 19-year-old in college in the world steps up to get baptized in front of the likes of you, and I hear it all the time. People come up to me. That testimony spoke to me. I'm going through the same thing. How can I help that person? Know that when you step up and get baptized, you're pouring into other people. And you're also pouring into me. I have the privilege and the location pastors do today. Plug uh, baptism class right after this service. So go. But when you come in and you share your testimony, and I usually do the interviewing, and I promise you I'm going to make it really easy. We just have a conversation. But you light a fire in me that I haven't felt. I forget sometimes what it was like when I first got saved and that fire that's in these new believers that are stepping up and getting baptized. It's an amazing thing to see, but this is why some Pauls need to be around some Timothys so that they can reinvest in you and you can reinvest in them. Pastor Tim actually has a a leadership class he's talked about before. Uh, It's only for male small group leaders, so don't ask me how you join, but every year he, he has male small group leaders that he pours into. Why male small group leaders? Because these male small group leaders then go back to their families, pour into their wives, pour into their kids and their families, and this is how it's supposed to work. We're supposed to reinvest and pour into each other. Second Timothy says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach each other also. That's what a loving church looks like. And the church needs to be ready to face persecution and properly respond in prayer and love. But the church, even the same church, can look different to different people. And I believe the church has three different stages, depending on where you are, uh, how long you've been coming, where you are in your faith walk. I believe every church looks a little bit different to different people. And it's important, I want to go over quickly, what stage you're at for you to recognize, because we're not supposed to be stagnant. We're not supposed to stay anywhere in our faith. We're supposed to move forward. So write this down if you're taking notes. The first stage, when you first come to church, it's a hospital and you're a patient. It's a hospital and you're a patient. Morton Kelsley famously wrote that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And I know that's where many of you are right now. It's where I started. I realized that I, I was lost and I came to church. And then I realized I was sick. And then I realized I was a sinner and I needed help. And that help was Jesus. So that's where a lot of us are when we first come to church. We're seeking, we're looking, and this building, these people are the hospital for the sick. Actually, Jesus is, but we represent him for you. Jesus said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those that think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Then stage two, you can write this down. Next, the church becomes a house, and you're the family. These are people that are in life groups. These are people that serve. I remember when I first started serving at this church, I started to feel a little bit more at home. Started in the parking lot 15 years ago, worked my way up to security, and then I became an usher, then a deacon, then an MC up here, and then finally I was hired on staff. You know, so 
worked my way up, became more like a home. But I remember in our old building, if you were with us about seven, eight years ago, that small building next door, it was so much smaller than this that we were up to five services. Two on Sunday, three on, two on Saturday, three on Sunday. And my whole family used to ask me, you work five days a week, sometimes six, and you come to church for five services. Why do you spend so much time there? Because I felt more at home around you in this building, in that building, around God's people than I did with my own unsaved family. And I know that some of you at your jobs, you'd rather be here than at work, at school, or at home. And that means you're part of the family, and this is your house. Ephesians 2.19 says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's people. You are members of God's family. And then finally, the third stage. Write this down. The church is no longer a building, but a holy people that share the gospel and pour into fellow believers. These are elders, these are small group leaders, these are ministers, these are soul winners. Some of you are soul winners, and we appreciate that. I'm going to give you a second because that's a lot to write down. But it says in... Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We need to grow from stage one to stage two to stage three and then beyond. Persecution, it's only going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back. We should expect it, but we should count it as a blessing and wear it as a badge of honor. Second Timothy says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So let me ask you, if you've never been persecuted for your beliefs, if you've never even had a discussion, a contentious discussion with somebody about Jesus, maybe you're not living a godly life. Because Jesus said everybody that lives a godly life will be persecuted. Maybe it hasn't happened yet. But it's a time to ask ourselves, am I walking as closely as I should with Christ? Sermon in the sentence to wrap up the whole message. When faced with persecution, seek God in prayer and show your enemies love and truth found only in Jesus Christ. Look, some of you have been coming for a long time and you're still in stage one. You come on the weekend, you feel good because of the message, and by Sunday night or Monday morning, you're back to living in the world. And you're wondering how, how come nothing's changed? How, how come I'm still in the same stage I was when I first came to Christ? You need to move on to stage two. Some of you are family members, but many of you have gotten too comfortable. You're going to life group, you're serving, but you've been going to the same life group for years and years. Maybe God wants to transform you, use you, and make a leader out of you. Step up and become a leader. We need more soldiers. We need more holy people that share the gospel and speak in truth and love. We need people that will pour the faith into other people and invite others to hear the gospel. Imagine if Waters Church, all of Waters Church, all locations, was a stage three church. Preaching the gospel, changing the world. That's what I want for us. That's what I want for you guys.
but I know not all of us are even in the first stage. And I want to close with one little illustration, one actual uh, historical thing that I learned a couple weeks ago that showed me how much more Jesus was persecuted than I even thought he was. So going back to the Roman times, the Romans were actually brilliant in a lot of ways. They made roads all around the known world. They made amazing buildings that nobody else could build. They were great inventors of war and torture. But there's one thing they invented that I didn't know. They invented the sanitary public bathroom. This is a picture of the first sanitary public bathroom. Why is it sanitary, you ask? Well, they built it on waters of flowing water, flowing river. So back then, they would dig a hole, people would go to the bathroom, and all the human waste would just sit in a pile. And that would cause people to get sick through disease. But they were smart enough to realize to put it under running water would cause it to wash away. The one thing they didn't have was toilet paper. Toilet paper wasn't invented to the 1700s, my Google tells me. So what did these brilliant Romans do? Well, they went to the Mediterranean Sea. They found a sponge. They put this sponge on a stick and they'd use it to clean themselves. It was called a toilet sponge. Now it was a public bathroom so they couldn't all have their own sponge, their own toilet bathroom, so they had to clean it. So they had a jar of vinegar that they would stick the sponge into. So when the next person came, it would be a little bit cleaner and they could take it out and clean themselves. Put it back into the jar for the next person. After a while, this jar got very nasty and they had to clean the jar. What does this have to do with the persecution of Jesus, you're asking? Flash forward to the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus, beaten, flogged, his beard torn out, a thorn of crowns shoved on his head, naked, carrying his cross, nailed hands and feet, bleeding down his head, bleeding through his feet. Some of his last words that he said to fulfill prophecy were, I'm thirsty. Now you can read it for yourself. Many people read into this text that the Roman soldier showed pity on Jesus and gave him something to drink. But the script says, the scriptures say, he picked up a sponge on a stick, stuck it in a jar of vinegar, and put it up to our Messiah's mouth. And Jesus said, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost. This was a last act of hate, a last act of persecution that they did to our God, our Messiah. But Jesus did that for you and for me. Jesus died for you so that you could have a right relationship with God. And I know there's some people here today that needed to hear that. Look, you're here for a reason. If you've never here, been here before, if you've never given your life to Christ, there's only one way to heaven, and that's by believing in Jesus. And look, if you don't believe and you're wrong, you have nothing to gain. But if you, do, if you don't believe and Jesus is right, you have everything to gain, eternal life.